0: Nabu uh, Blywise history. This is lecture number 111. Uh, I'll see if I can get through this one. The let um, maybe, maybe a bright spot before a glimmer, a glimmer before we um, we go into the topic of the Shoah. Yeah, there's one more personality who um, who dies a few uh, really at the ri- right at the time of the rise of the Nazi Party who um, who deserves to be mentioned. His name is he's uh, really first name is Rav Yehuda but everybody knows him as Rav Meir Shapiro who uh, actually didn't lead that long of a life. He was only alive for um, 46 years, um, from 1887 to 1933. He was a Hasidish Rebbe, a disciple of the Chortkover Rebbe. Um, and he was a Rebbe in different jobs. And um, in 1931, he was appointed the Rav of the Marshal's old shul in Lublin. Lublin being one of the largest cities in Poland. Marshal, you remember, was a cousin of the Ramah, and he was installed as the Rav, and um, he was quite a personality. He was uh, he he did he did he did a major impact and well known doer. In fact, he was um, he was elected to the Polish Parliament as one of the representatives of the Jews from the, uh, representing the Hasidic world. Um, the, he was uh, one one story about him. He was um, in those days anti-Semitism was not hidden and so what today because of the Baruch Hashem, the PC culture has great virtues insofar as people at least don't say what they're thinking, uh, back in the day people could be openly anti-Semitic and there'd be no repercussions, so in in this particular exchange, uh, an anti-Semite who was also a member of the Polish parliament uh, came over to Rabbi Mayer Shapiro and said, did you hear about the German town with the sign no dogs or Jews allowed he said to Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Meir, quick with a retort, didn't miss a beat and said, then I guess neither of us can go. <laughs> no I'm dogs gonna, or Jews allowed. Gonna, he taught a dog. Well, you're right, if I'm, if I'm Jewish and I can't go for that reason, no dogs or Jews allowed, then I guess neither of us can go, he said. Yeah. The, uh, he didn't have any children himself, but he said he called his two greatest accomplishments his son and his daughter, respectively. Uh, the one he actually started years before. As a young man in 1923, he founded. I you know? He started in 1923. You all know, whether he realized it or not. What did he? What did he found? Dafiomi. That was his brainchild. He thought that you know a lot of Jews would, if they could, would like to go through shas. Don't have necessarily the skills. They certainly don't have the motivation or the time. But if you could come up with a regulated um, cycle. Of learning that everybody, and he dreamt maybe even around the world, might one day be involved with, and they'd have to, they'd have this objective <laughs> regimen they'd have to keep up with on a daily basis. Maybe that would motivate. Maybe that would inspire people to start learning shas. And indeed, uh, he started the program. And the idea, of course, was to review the entire cycle every seven and a half years. You remember Rabbi Yochanan. Uh, in the Mesifsa the great the great yeshiva, they, they, they completed the whole shas uh, twice in their whole, in their whole t- tenure, right? So that was different then than it is today. Rabbi, Rabbi Meir Shapiro's version was seven and a half years. Uh, and eventually, indeed, it became embraced by world by, by worldwide jury. Um, we've been making Sioumium ever since. The next one is in the winter of 2019, uh, a few years away. I'm in the middle of Kisubus. Yeah, Kasubas right 48, now, 48. Um, it's uh, it's inspiring. I remember being at the one, and not the last one, but the one earlier. One of my last trips to America in two thousand and three, we attended, and uh, we happened to be visiting. In in, in was that doing to no one of my last visits? I, I went, I went then, maybe one more time, and then and then the last visit was two thousand and seven. Wow. Yeah, long it's long interesting. I been there. it is a long time. It's true, and no prospects of going in the. Oh, your, your my my parents come here oh, right. at at Nezrat Hashem and yeah and my nephews here so my sister comes and yeah no I, I do miss a lot of people in the old world but uh, anyway that's yeah the um, so uh, we were there in two thousand and three and I remember going down to some large convention center in downtown Los Angeles packed with Jews and and, then, and then the video have you ever been at one of these uh, Siumim? They video conference everybody from around the world, making a seum. So you had rabbis coming in from Johannesburg and from Gateshead and from Yerushalayim, of course, where the largest seum is. And it's really inspiring. It's stunning. It was larger than the one in New York. Madison Square Garden. I don't know the numbers, and who cares? But you know, yeah, they they, they right like that, like that, like literally all around the world. And what a wonderful way of of of, of emphasizing achdus and Jews learning and. People will attend these who've never been involved and suddenly resolve, I'm going to do this now. Right, I want to be a part of the Dafyomi cycle. So that was Reverend Mary Shapiro's brainchild. His other child, his other descendant, as it were, was to come where the Marshal had his old shul and he was, up, he, was he was, like a mover and shaker, kind of a personality where he raised the funds to build uh, the yeshiva for the Hasidic world. It was called the Yeshivas Chochmi Lublin, he based it, he, his models. He shot for the best. He, you know, was modeled on Voloshin, on Slobodka, on Navardic. Uh He wanted to merge the Litvish and the Hasidic worlds, uh, to some degree at least. It was meant for training Hasidic rabbis to go, go, to, to go uh, practice anywhere in the world. They actually started the project. was started in 1924 and only opened in 1930. Um, it was a massive, it remains, it's a massive building for hundreds of students. The library contained a hundred thousand sfarim. There was nothing like it in the world. In terms of dimension, in terms of vision, it was enormous. Um, and Rav Moshe Mirchapur was, of course, the Rosh Yeshiva. Uh, he conceived of it as the world's first deluxe yeshiva to try to elevate students and to give them a greater sense of self-esteem, of pride, of being... You know, you're going to be rabbis, and not, not necessarily, you know, trying to give them uh, comfortable accommodations. Uh, they have proper amenities. The, the The surroundings are very attractive. There's spacious living facilities, uh, very nice dining facilities. The building it was, so, it was so solid, meant to last. Uh, he said hundreds of years, thousand of years. Um, so it opened. It opened in 1930, and the building meant to last hundreds of years would be closed by the Nazis. Nine years after it opened, its vast library was taken out to an open field outside of Lublin and then burned. And all the Jews of the city of Lublin were forced to come out and watch the burning of their holy safari. The building stands today. When I visited there some 15 years ago, it was it was. I think a, d- a dental school and other medical—they use it for other medical use. I remember walking through there, and the smell of formaldehyde wafted in the corridors. That once, uh, you know, w- the discussion was was Divrei and now it's medical school. I think it's reverted now. There's something going it's on that there today. It's a hotel now on the top. And then the bottom they made it a museum. A museum, the, uh, I think, I think some people try to learn but there. It's a, the <laughs> it's a hotel at the top. It's a hotel at the top. We I know when we visited we tried to learn a Torah to reinfuse the kedusha as best we can, but the tragedy of the place, the the vision, the idea that we've seen throughout our history that there's really no um, there's no stability in Gallus. There's no way of counting from one generation up to the next uh, was is, was and remains our story. Okay. Um, We're talking about the Shoah, which is a difficult period to relate to. Even just approaching it, what defines the period? We suggested that you could start really from World War I. Another argument could be that it begins with the rise of the Nazi Party in 1933. Let's say more classically people dated from 1939 with the outbreak formally of World War II and the military campaign. Um, It does come to a crashing end in 1945. Baruch Hashem. That period has a variety of different names. Shoah is probably the easiest, most um, legitimate term. It's based on a a pasuk in the Torah uh, that refers to calamity. Um, the term Holocaust has, is, is, is based on an, uh, an ancient term. <coughs> it was first applied to the Jews in the persecution, if you remember, um, not quite a millennium ago in York, in, um, in, in Britain, um, where the Jews were persecuted and Holocaust referring to pagan rites of sacrificial offerings by fire cost being by um, the Holocaust, burning burning by fire. Uh, some people don't like the reference. I mean, people like to take offense nowadays Everybody's a victim. <coughs> so the term Holocaust has its critics. Um, some people refer to it as World War II. If you had to come up with a good name for it, a historian by the name, of, there are a lot of Holocaust historians, um, by the name of Lucy Davidovitz. She very straight, calls it in a very straightforward term she, in the title of her book, The War Against the Jews, which, to a large degree, that's the way I'm gonna be relating to it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we're talking about, then, the rise of Hitler to power in 1933, um, the destruction of European Jewry and the Nazi regime. The, together with the world's collective refusal to do anything uh, until, until it's very late. Um, and it, the end, it, with ending um, with the defeat in 1935, the period still um, is so hard to relate to. Um, it took, we'll see this in history, it took most of the civilized world a couple decades before it's really even talked about in any cultural way. As, maintain, as, as becoming something mainstream and, and, and something you can relate to because it, it was so unprecedented, so unthinkable on so many levels that it seemed the logical thing to do was deny it and to, to sweep it under the rug. Um, there was a Jew by the name of Raphael Lemkin who came up with a word in 1944 trying to grapple with the enormity of what, what, what was going on. This word never existed before 1944. He invented the word <laughs> genocide genocide which today is such a central part of the world's lexicon on so many levels was coined specifically to describe what the Nazis were doing to the Jewish world because on this kind of magnitude it had never been done before the what we've been tracing and 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 what well, we've been tracing now with the, uh, with the Jews coming to with the, from the story of the four captives and, and the, um, the spread of Torah away from the Babylonian center and gradually going across the Maghreb, North Africa, and eventually making it to, um, to the south of Europe and further north and then east, um, Spain and France and Germany and Poland and Russia and Italy. Um, this Torah center with giants upon giants that we've been discussing for the last thousand years, uh, it, took, it took all that time to build it up, would be wiped out in 12 years. As we've said, this anti-Semitism, it's a new form of anti-Semitism restrained by no moral bounds, no religious uh, limitations. They would commit virtually every atrocity that we've experienced in all of our long anti-Semitic history and they would innovate new kinds of atrocities that would never have been thought possible, imaginable. And we say it's unprecedented. That doesn't mean that it's unpredicted. The um, Klala that we read about in the Torah, Parshish Luchukosai, which uh, is the Klala focused on by Rishon, you remember, and Parshish Kisavo at the end of the Torah, Focused on by Shani, which makes it more relevant because it's still part of the destruction of the Second Temple that we're that we're experiencing. This last Golos, this last of the four Gullios. Um the the parsha is very clear that Am Yisrael is not ever to abandon Kadush barahu and the psukim describe in vivid detail, graphic detail, the consequences of abandoning Kadush barahu and many of these descriptions anticipate many of the horrors of our history and because the Shoah is so fresh in our memory still and has now become uh, such a cinematic topic, it's something that's so um, so much on people's minds and so much captured, so much the, the world's imagination uh, the, the images are very, very uh, distinct for us um, I'll translate a few of the psukim we read in, we read in the Parshiski Savo, you will become an astonishment, a proverb A byword byword among all the nations in which Hashem will lead you. Today, you know that the um, world uses Holocaust and Holocaust-associated terms as metaphors constantly. Um, Nazis being the embodiment of of evil, and if a person were before the Holocaust, do you remember this in history? Who was the embodiment of human evil? Before there was Adolf Hitler, it was Paro. If you read in pre-Holocaust literature, you want to you want to you know throw out an epithet, you want to throw out a a, a, a a name, a term, a derogatory term for somebody. You say, oh, that guy's a paro, was the was the embodiment of of, of pure evil. Today, it's Hitler when or the Nazis. Are, there were, not, you don't think there, were people between them. there were a lot of evil people. I'm talking about if, if you wanted to use a common cultural reference for evil, that was what it was. I'm referring to the fact that this posse predicts will be an astonishing, a proverb. The proverbs now, much of modern culture throughout the world now, is Holocaust-based, um, where gas chambers and uh, Holocaust victim. If somebody's very skinny, you'll say, oh, you're, you're a survivor, we'll, put, we'll gas them. We'll, all, all of these, all these become um, iconic kinds of uh, terms. Um, and that's exactly what the pasuk anticipates. Elsewhere, the pasuk says, Hashem will bring a nation against you from far, from the end of the earth. The nation will swoop down like a nesher, which is alternately translated as a vulture, uh, but more popularly as an eagle. Uh, linguists will debate the accuracy of that, but let's stick with the eagle as the image. Uh, the nation will sweep down like an eagle, a nation of fierce countenance that will neither respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. I, um, when I guide Yad Vashem or some of the Holocaust museums, so they give you those, uh, you know, the, 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 the um, the, uh, speaker and people can listen to you or not listen to you, but as we walk around, I sometimes opt to to cite these psuki because as you're staring at the, at the walls and you see the pictures, for example, of the Nazis, beating the old men in their tallisens fill in and forced them to wipe the, the, the city streets um, with their bare hands. So the idea of neither respecting elderly nor show, showing favor to the young. You see the, 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 the tortured and abused babies at the hands of the Nazis who can't see their humanity. Um... This image of the eagle is a, is, is a potent one. It, we, it goes all the way back, if you want to trace it in history, we find a pasuk in Ovadia, the one chapter of Ovadia, the shortest book in Tanakh. What does Ovadia, of course, famously address? It's the redemption. It is the redemption, but he has one particular focus, and it has to do with his own personal background. He's the only Navi. Uh, he was not part of the chain of... He was, the, all, no, there were a couple of Navim who were not part of the chain of the Masora, good memory. But also, he actually was a convert from Edom, Wait, he from Esau. Who was is not from the west side besides him and Yonah? Um, and Iheskel. Uh-huh. But That's fine. oh no, okay. um, Nehemia and Ezra. Yeah. So, so Ovadia, referring to Edom, his own, his own uh, origins. Uh, it says, If you rise like an eagle, If you place your nest between the stars, misham I will bring you down from there, says Hashem. Rising to the level of the stars, that's of course Edom's, Edom's true desires to conquer the world. And I don't know if you have this image in your mind, but those Nazi rallies with Adolf Hitler's charismatic persona, uh, speaking to the masses and, 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 and attracting this, this fervor, this, this, uh, this, this immense following, um, the, each, the eagle, the vulture, the nesher, has become a perennial emblem of anti-Semitism. Um, if you come to my house next, I'll show you an artistic rendition in the Masagada. Haggadah. You, you know the Masagada? So he actually does this artistically, where sh- shockingly and stunningly, you see the eagle in the following. You find the coins of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, right, of Yavon, the persecution under Yavon. And the images of the Holocaust are very, very parallel in many ways that we saw in the description of how the Greeks persecuted the Jews. Um, the eagle, again, is a symbol of Vespasian. You remember the father of Titus. They destroyed the base of Mikdash in the, sec- the Second Temple period. It's an image used by Hadrian, who puts down Bar Kokhba and, and, and flattens Yerushalayim it's among other things um, where there was a blood libel in the city of trent in italy in 1475 well the eagle eagle is primary in the coat of arms of the city um, pope innocent the third initiated the fourth crusade it's his seal is the eagle uh, as is pope clement the fourth who um, officiated at the talmud burning in 1264 plus the expulsion of the raban um, the czar of russia his icon is the imperial eagle, and of course, the city of Auschwitz, the their civic seal is, <coughs> is the eagle, as, plus, plus that was the as of course, the Nazi emblem, it. emblem itself. Okay. Um, you can go into, the, I, this is a very inadequate uh, quotation. I, I refer you to the entire Klohe, and you'll see the description is almost uh, uncannily um, accurate in predicting the, the the kind of horrors that emerge in the uh, times of the Shoah, <coughs> I've referred to to the uh, Gemara and Megillah, uh, starting on the on the on the top on the bottom of Vavah Aleph and going to the next page Vavah Medes. Yaakov asks Hashem. He davens to Hashem. He says, "Be careful with my twin brother Esav. Please don't grant him his the wicked desire of his heart." And he says something that the Gemara has to explain, quoting Apostle Kintahil, and he said, Esau has a metaphorical nose ring, harness of sorts. They would put these in animals as a way of containing them and making them. In a bull, for example, you picture the nose ring. That's how the trainers can subdue the bull. So that the, the bull won't pull away. They can, they, can tie it, they can tie a rope to the nose ring. Um, don't remove the nose ring from Asab. The Gemara then comments, what is that nose ring? Who is this referring to? And it says, the pasuk refers to Germamia shel Edom, which many of them are far the Vilna of of Yaakov Emdin say Germamia is indeed, like it sounds, Germany, who, the Gemara says, this is, this is writing some 1,600 years before modern times, if they would be freed of their nose ring, if they would go forth, they would destroy the world. The Gemara then describes that there are apparently 300 crown princes in Germania Shell Edom who are constantly constrained um, by their constant infighting. They're always <laughs> fighting with the Roman chieftains uh, in, in their midst. Always, always fighting. In, uh, I'm quoting now a history book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich who describes the history of pre-modern Germany. By the Middle Ages... Germany remained a crazy patchwork of individual states numbering approximately 300. And if you study, you think about Bavaria and Prussia and all the various sub-districts in uh, collectively referred to as Germany, they were constantly at war. If you learn the history of the Protestant Reformation and then the 130 years war, you see that, uh, that they were constantly going at it. And as a result, they weakened one another. And that only in the uh, modern era did they finally gain some kind of unity and only when they were unified did they indeed pose a threat and almost rise up and swallow the world. Uh, It's one of the reasons we mentioned this also why Germany was historically not colonist, colonialist in the same way that the other European powers were. You hear a little bit of Germany in Ertz Israel, but uh, think about German colonies around the world and you're a little hard pressed but you have, you have tiny little uh, Netherlands well-represented, certainly Portugal and, and, and on a much larger scale, Britain, Spain, France uh, and other countries uh, colonizing the world. The German, Germans were not capable of doing that um, until the modern era. And we saw with the rise of Kaiser Wilhelm and World War I really setting the, setting the background to this, the Germans were um, penalized severely after World War I Often now historians look back in perfect uh, retrospect and they say it was a mistake of the League of Nations to uh, destroy the German economy to the degree that, that they did because they created this angry, starving population that was um, hungry to rise up again and to, uh, to do damage. Um, other early indications of what was coming, something that was maybe unbelievable but was was seemingly foreseen. We saw already the Orsemeach in his, in his, in his, in his uh, commentary on the Chumash predicts it, the Meshach Chochmah. The Magid of Kelm in 1879 explained the German does not chase the Jew for no reason at all. The German chases the Jew out of a deeply reasoned Shulchan Aruch of hatred. Um, and he said, Why does the German, why specifically the German? He made a different connection, not just Asaph, but he said there was something else that was born in Germany. Uh, and he's referring to, um, he refers to the Shulchan Aruch of Geiger. Geiger being one of the architects of reform. Okay, reform started in Germany, and the Magid of Kelm zeroed in on early reform. He said, Because of the new Shulchan Aruch that rejects the real Shulchan Aruch, um, he predicted a new edition of a German Tsholchan Aruch, a book will come out against all of Klal Yisrael that will say that the best of the Jews should die. Of course, that was exactly almost verbatim what Hitler's uh, Mein Kampf would say, kill the best of them. Um, we saw also predictions where we saw Salanter predicted because of, because of their, in, their allowing intermarriage um, at the Reform Convention 90 years earlier, he predicted that uh, the the Germans would rise up and prohibit German non-Jews from marrying Jews, which indeed, in the original Nuremberg laws, uh, at the very beginning from 1933, uh, it was was outlawed, uh, any intermarriage from Germans with Jews. At the outbreak of the Shoah, there were almost 10 million Jews in Europe, throughout Europe. Most scholars today are in agreement that there were approximately 5.8 million Jews murdered in total. Most of the rest either got out before or against the odds survived uh, the, the extent while in Europe of the uh, of the Shoah. <clears throat> now we know until the Enlightenment, Jews were always despised in the world, Esam, Son, Esiap, certainly, but they were despised mainly for being different. The Enlightenment <laughs> represents this new opportunity for Jews, so they, or at least they like to think. They thought that their survival, the solution to the Jewish problem, as we've traced in this class, depended on assimilating. Maybe if we become like the Goyim, maybe if we, are, if we become more Goyish than the Goyim themselves, a particular skill the Jews are unmatched in. Whatever Wherever they've been, they've usually mastered the local... Uh, the the local professions, the local environment, the local culture, had literally outdone the non-Jews at being non-Jewish. As we see it, they're they're excelling in almost every sphere except sports, arguably. And uh, now that they're trying to do this in the country where they integrated best, because there was no place more assimilatory than than, than, than Germany. And um, and now they were hated for, as, as Hitler would write, poisoning the gene pool of the master race, specifically not in being just different. By, by being too similar, the Germans said they're trying to integrate with us. I was mistaken. The Nuremberg Logs came out in 1935, not 1933. Uh, they, they did forbid intermarriage. They also denied Jews the rights to vote. They denied Jews citizenship. Uh, they denied them the right to hold any public office within the, within the Third Reich. Um, we know you can try to run away from Judaism, and you can't, you can't run away. Uh, Kanish Baruch Hu says, whatever misfortune befalls you has nothing to do with whether you're too Jewish or not Jewish enough. It all comes down to hate. Right? Just like Aaron, Aaron the Cohen goes, and the Jews were thinking that the Ketairus is deadly, and so Aaron goes and takes the Ketairus itself <coughs> and uses the Ketairus to stop the plague, so too, and Rashi comments there. Rashi says, because the Keteris is not the cause of the catalyst. The Keteris doesn't cause death, nor does it really cause life. Sin causes misfortune. Tshuva brings back life. Right, doing mitzvahs brings back life. It's all. It's all. Ultimately, our doing, and we're gonna. We're gonna. Uh, not right. Not quite yet. We'll try to grapple with. Um, Causes, causes. What, 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 how do we, how do we look at the show? We'll try to pose some of the, some of the big questions. I don't anticipate that I'm going to resolve everything, uh, but we'll certainly try to bring them up. The Nazis. We talked about the Nazis' war against the Jews. To be precise, and try to give the whole picture, they did kill millions of all, others as well. The Jews were at the top of their list, but they were not the only, only uh, groups on their list. They targeted ethnic Poles. They targeted the Roma people, often referred to as Gypsies. They targeted homosexuals, people with handicaps, uh, a variety of what they considered undesirable people who didn't fit their Aryan ideal. But what can be said and should be said is that only the Jews as a group were targeted for total destruction. Uh, Nobody else was singled out, and this again was unprecedented. There was never an instance in all of history where an entire nation would be singled out a nation dispersed among, among all the other nations uh, with complete destruction. Um, they used racist terminology as a way of suppressing the Jews. But the Nazis were not really fueled by racism. That wasn't the major, the core. Um, Hitler's major complaint was otherwise. Do you know? What would you say? What, what's, I mean, okay, they're different, they're the same. In their own, on their own terms, what was Hitler's major gripe against Kuala Israel? they they introduced morality? That's right. And I'll quote. He said, my goal, our goal, the Nazi's platform, is to revert the planet to its ideal natural state of having a pagan master class. Pagan, by pagan he meant devoid of any moral underpinnings. We are going to be, we're going to master the world and enjoy the world uh, and all of its material benefits. We do not need to be polluted by the Jewish ideals of monotheism and ethics. Nor and Hitler was, was, was an opponent of Christianity too. He said, I don't like its Christian offshoots either. The Jews gave the world a conscience. We have to destroy them for that. The Hitler Youth sang, I'll quote one of their songs, We are the joyous Hitler Youth. We don't need Christian virtue." Our leader is our savior. The pope and the rabbi shall be gone. We want to be pagans once again. Um, It actually wasn't the Jew who coined the term anti-Semitism. That was another German a century earlier by the name of Wilhelm Marr. He made up the term. Uh, He was an anti-Semite. He wrote in 1879, Jewry's control of society and politics is still in the prime of its development. (coughs) Yes, through the Jewish nation, Germany will become a new power, a, he called it a Western New Palestine. Uh, he said it fought against the Western world for 1800 years, the Jewish people and the Jewish spirit, and the Jews are finally conquering it. He says, not individual Jews, he says the entire Jewish spirit and Jewish consciousness have overpowered the world. He wrote again in 1879. So you have to see that as a companion piece to Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf did not grow up in a vacuum. It was part of this worldview that sees the Jews as bringing the world, like you say, morality. as bringing them this dimension of a, of a conscience, of a sense of right and wrong. That is, if you're not subscribing to that, if you're trying to lead a life of pagan decadence, it's the most hateful thing you could imagine is the guy pointing a finger at you saying, don't do that. Don't give it to your Yitzhahara. Um, what's striking, in 1879, when he wrote these words, there was no Zionism yet in the world. The Jews were every bit as oppressed as they'd ever been. I mean, he's claiming that there's a Jewish uprising, the protocols of the elders of Zionists, but the Jews are, it's, 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 it's on the eve of any sense of success, of national enterprise, 1879, Right, was, was still a, a decade before, it was a year after the first Mosheva opened in Petah Tikva and would close down, and there was no sense that they were going to go anywhere in Palestine. There was no organized Jewish movement, there was really very little of anything. You had a couple of rich Jews, you had the Rothschilds in Montefiore. But, uh, but, you know, they were the most oppressed nation in the world, and yet his perception was true. He said, The Jews, we know, the Jews, we said, Nasa we became an Am We brought a code of Hashem's word to the, to the world, the Ten Commandments, and uh, the, the, the striving for truth and for goodness. And the fact that the Jews, who wear this as a badge, the Torah as their badge, and their ongoing existence was threatening to the world order as the, as the Germans and the, the Nazis eventually preferred it, uh, and, and they, they could not exist. The two could not coexist. They used a very several successful weapons. They used the mode of dehumanizing in order to avoid any problems of conscience and that, why, that way get widespread report. So terms were used like extermination instead of murder because if the Jews are so many undesirable cockroaches, then you bring in the exterminated to get rid of them and then it makes the whole process much more palatable. You're actually achieving some kind of um, gain for society it's for an overall good. Uh, and they used, the, they used this whole line of thinking very, very, very effectively to put over their plan. Um, Hitler himself had no moral compunctions. He had no consciousness. Uh, described in a book called The Voice of Destruction by Hermann um, Rauschning, um, Hitler was quoted as saying, yes, we are barbarians. We want to be barbarians. It is an honorable title to us. Providence has ordained, it's interesting, he talks about Providence. I guess he's referring to Goddess Hu. Providence has ordained that I should be the greatest libera- liberator of humanity. I free man from the degrading self mortification of a false visit called conscience and morality. Conscience is a Jewish invention. The actual military war began on September 1st, 1939. German invaded Poland. And uh, without going too much in depth on the military front, the Nazis would quickly conquer most of Europe. Um, their strategy very famously was one called Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg which, was, which translates as lightning war. Their approach was to use a very concentrated, sudden, fast-moving infantry and armory, uh, and then was backed up by an intense art- artillery and air support. And uh, they blitzed. They 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 uh, blitzed their enemies into submission. Who were intimidated and didn't fight back as as, as they could have. Um, they invaded the Soviet the Soviets, and a special German unit they called the Einsatzgruppen. They began uh, with this already. They began systematically murdering people. Um, Usually, in the very outbreak of the war for the next couple of years, their mode of murder was to to have the people dig their own pits, to line them by the pits, and to shoot them. Um, They murdered a lot of people this way, but certainly the majority were Jews. There were 1.5 million Jews murdered. Uh, It's interesting that this part of the discussion is easier to get through because it's so familiar to us that most of us, especially because most of us are pretty Holocaust literate, we we're, were, these are familiar themes. We've heard the statistics, I'm trying as best I can. Most people talk about the six million, so I'm trying to correct it with, with as greater accuracy as we can, 5.8, not the specific NAFTA, um, but at this point, it's still, we are in that maybe necessary state of denial and numbness that we can get through this discussion, because uh, we haven't ourselves humanized it. We're talking about it in theory. Uh, I, I'll, I'm going to change gears at one point, but um, but I'm going to continue giving an overview, which I think is important. You have to understand the big picture. Uh, early on in the war then, when the, Germany, the Germans are busy conquering Europe and uh, starting their mass murder campaign, um, they do indeed make an alliance. The Grand Mufti, as we mentioned last week, uh, uh, Right. I mean, uh, Haj Amin al-Hussein declares open support for, support for the Axis powers of Germany and Italy. Uh, he takes up residence in Berlin when he's chased out after, after he betrayed the Brits. He hopes that, he, I'm going to quote him, Hitler's solution to the Jewish problem would be applied in the Middle East as well. Uh, but you know, we mentioned the Grand Mufti. He was not the only ally of the Germans. Uh, if you think back to 1938 and the Evian Conference the unwillingness of the world to take any part in taking any large group of refugees Uh, the world has certainly a hand in 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 the uh, in in the in all of the events of these times Uh, and really throughout in most of europe most of europe were indeed willing allies that's the consensus today Uh, there was a fairly well-known book uh, out called Hitler's Willing Executioners that makes this argument much more eloquently than I am right now, uh, where he, he, he says Hitler would never have been able to get away with what he did had he not had the support of the majority, overwhelming majority of mainland Europeans. The French police and the Vichy government sent 72,000 French Jews to their deaths in Aus- Auschwitz. Uh, they were absolutely complicit. Most of the Polish society, Austrians, Hungarians, I uh, had really rattled down the list, and other Europeans did. Likewise, even the supposedly neutral Swiss zealously guarded their borders. They wanted no Jews escaping to their midst. Um, there may be two exceptions, one really strikingly, and the other one to a lesser degree. Uh, two exceptions to the rule throughout all of Europe. Holland? No, not Holland so much. No, Holland were maybe not the worst, but they were, they, they were complicit. Holland? No, but you're in the right. You're in the right uh, general sphere. Um, Bulgaria, to a lesser degree, but to a, to a, to an admirable degree, Denmark. Denmark, Denmark, Denmark was. Country that's country. what you were thinking of. Was was the exception? Denmark, the, the, the Danes, uh, with at the uh, with at with the inspiration of the king, who was uh, was stomach, He must be counted among the Hasid Umosa all the righteous of the non-Jews, and, and his population. They actually saved about 97 percent of the Jews living in Denmark it wasn't a large population but uh they were extraordinary it's ironic today denmark is one of the scandinavia generals, one of the most hostile places to the jews uh today so this was short-lived uh, most of the world as we said remained quiet or otherwise the prime minister of england was neville chamberlain chamberlain he said uh how horrible Fantastic, incredible, is it that we should be digging trenches, because remember he was part of the Allies, and trying on gas masks here in England because of, of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. He said, articulating what most felt. There's no sympathy for the Jews. They had it coming. Uh we'll see what America, America's role in all of this is too, but I'm going to get to that. In the end, at the very beginning, America did, America did very little, uh, almost nothing, uh, <coughs> as, as the world just watched with fascination as the Nazis uh, rose and, 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 and were initially quite quite successful. In 1942... The Nazis controlled most of Europe, and in Europe, they controlled about eight, to eight of the nine million Europeans, uh, Jews still in Europe. About a million by this point had gotten out, and of the nine million Jews in Europe, the Nazis controlled eight, eight million of them. And uh, they were very upfront. Their plan was to murder all of them. Up until now, the killing squads were... Sl- excuse me, I said a million got out. That's not accurate. Uh, 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 many were killed. Many were killed. Um, but they were killed by killing squads. Who And the killing squads were uh, notoriously slow. They were messy. They were costly. And the Nazis were efficient if they were anything. Remember, Aesop is a master of this world, organized and meticulous. And the killing squads the, over the pits was. was clearly not the wave of the future. What are we going to do? How are we going to efficiently get rid of these remaining 9 million Jews? And with that, they, can, they devised, and I'm obviously skipping a lot, but giving you the main things you should know, the, what's called the final solution of systematic gassing. It begins in 1941. Officially, it lasts all the way until the end. Uh, the final solution is responsible for the death of over 3 million uh, in its Heightened uh, efficiency, they could kill up to 12,000 people in one day. Since these are all kind of numbers and raw data, they mean nothing and don't impress us. But um, if you could try to take a minute and consider 12,000 people, uh, it's it's mind-boggling to imagine the uh, systematic murder of 12,000 people every day. Uh, but they really they, they got it down to a science. Auschwitz, we think of I'm talk, right now I'm giving you overview and basic ideas. because <coughs> even if it's familiar, it's important to have some accuracy in discussing these things, we're going to humanize it more tomorrow. Um, Auschwitz was the symbol of the show, right and remains that till today. Um, ironically, a couple there, there's a reason for that. More Jews were killed there than ever, anywhere else. In the end, um, 1,100,000 Jews would be murdered there. But at the same time, a Jew sent to Auschwitz had the largest chance of survival than almost anywhere else. So it was simultaneously the worst and the best. Uh, there were 65,000 survivors in Auschwitz. Um, most Russian Jews were killed in pits. Um, Polish Jews were killed in places like Belzac, Belzac's Chelmo, Majda, Majdanek, Sobibor, Treblinka. Almost all of them were murdered. Very few got away. Uh, Auschwitz is in the south of Poland, so those Jews who were who went to Auschwitz had a better chance of survival. Um, the Jews in ghettos also often perished, like in the, the Lodz ghetto. They suffered uh, immensely the, uh, of starvation. Many, many would just simply die of starvation, which is a horrific kind of a death, slow and painful. Um, in Auschwitz, those who survived, uh, eight, they, re- they received regular rations. Um, in Lodz, they were just abandoned. In Warsaw ghetto, uh, the Jews also starved. Uh, eventually, they were given to the, to the, to the train, the transports the, uh, to, to the camps. The head of the Jewish uh, committee to be most of the Jews to their deaths uh, killed himself on Tisha B'Av. his name is Adam Chernikowski. A, famous, yeah, famous point. Movie, is that right? Okay. Can you, are you allowed to watch movies that are like uh, okay that aren't way like or don't so I understand you've heard me on the topic before, I understand that movies as a as a as a general independent of this discussion are generally a problem. Um, and they don't they make a little plume. they don't distinguish. So, Even though logically you can certainly distinguish such movies from those better more problematic content um, we know that in addition to just the uh you know the, the, the targeted murders um, the jews are subjected for especially the six years of the of, of the war of the military fighting uh, the cruelest forms of torture that could be invented And these, of course, caused many, many more deaths. And we don't have an exact number. We don't have all the the raw data exactly. But we know there were countless medical experiments, sadistic, without anesthetics, uh, such as taking two people and artificially sewing them together to create Siamese twins. They would immerse people in freezing cold water to test how long they could survive. Many didn't. They would transplant organs to see what the effects would be, often resulting in death and, and excruciating pain and agony in the process. They subjected people to testing to mustard gas, to um, injections to injections of malaria, to other, other poisonous experiments. Uh, they subjected Jews to slave labor. The death marches, often in freezing cold, often without shoes. Uh, for, for untold lengths without, without, without uh, supplies. Jews would be packed in cattle cars without toilets, often literally stacked on one, one another <coughs> in freezing cold conditions. <coughs> they, uh, people would have their gold fillings torn out of their mouth in the middle of the street while they were alive. Their hair would be shorn to stuff mattresses, um, their personal affects, glasses, jewelry would be stolen from them. They were physically, literally turned into animals, dehumanized. He was a subject like of one of the experiments, yeah. correct. Till today, you can visit the Call of Arevi and Rebbe and see that. Yeah. Now, there's a question. Anticipating the up could have Okay, so you can say the signs were there and you could look at the Gemara Magilla and the Klala and everything else but um, if you were to if we were to be alive in the 1930s and they would tell us uh, uh, what, was, what was facing us we might also be in collective denial because such a thing is just not imaginable uh, and Gedolim were asked what do we do, Rebbe? Should we stay? Should we go? Generally speaking the Gedolim um, their answer was to stay. Famous story of the Belzer Rebbe, who said to stay. And sometimes they're criticized for that. I I told you my experience. I was standing. I we we led this. We led a group to uh, uh, at a different program, not my program. That's one of the reasons why I founded my own program. At a different program, we led it. We led a group of uh, there was about five (coughs) hundred young men and women in separate groups, Although in this one presentation, (laughs) we were all in Auschwitz. We were together standing (coughs) separately. Boys on one side, girls on the other. And um, I don't know why he was chosen, but an academic individual uh, was chosen to speak at Auschwitz. Now, you talk at Auschwitz, you can talk about anything, and the mood is, you're just utterly exposed and raw emotionally, and you're devastated, and you don't know what to do. But if you're talking there, you can virtually say anything, right, the Holocaust is uh, untold volumes of uh, potential topics you can speak about. So he chose to, chose to tell the story about the Belzer Rebbe, Standing there in their announcements. Why he chose that, well, I uh, can only be imagined for cynical reasons. Um, and the story that he, that, he, that he recounted was that at the end, the Belzer Rebbe said to stay. At the end, Belzer and are wiped out. <coughs> the Rebbe, the Rebbe, miraculously is saved. And he escapes and comes there to Israel. And a Kapo, Jew who survived, overheard one of the senior primary women as she was walking into the gas chambers to her death saying something to the effect of, you let us hear Rebbe. And that's what he, that was the message he liked to transport. This is what happens when you listen to your Rebbes. So that's, that's what he told me standing in Auschwitz. And of course, I'm standing there and I'm shocked. I don't think of what a film I don't know what this person is, academic, is that, what, what, how how what he's thinking and what kind of punishment he'll get. But Baruch Hashem, there was a far more knowledgeable, eloquent um, senior uh, staff member who got on the bus after we listened to that. Uh, he had written an encyclopedia on the Jews of, of Galicia or Merah who got up and he was, he was beside himself. And he said, that was a terrible Chil Hashem what that man just spoke about. And he, he put it into context. He said, before the Shoah, you knew nothing. We don't have Nevoah. We don't have Ruach HaKodesh. We're rabbis, right? So a rabbi would have reasonably looked at the possibilities facing a Jew in the 1930s, and none of them were appealing. If you could send them to Palestine, but what, what awaited you in Palestine? We just saw the Chazadish came to a Torah wasteland. The idea, the prospect of sending Jews en masse to Palestine possibly meant <coughs> the end of Torah life in Olam Hazin. And if that was true in Palestine, it was certainly no better. It was much worse than the Golden Medina. And other places had closed their doors to the Jews. So, if you're talking about going abroad, well, then you're risking possible death in Olam Hazeh and therefore in Olam Haba. At least if you stay put in Europe, who knows what's going to be in Olam Hazeh? And the worst scenario, they'll murder you in Olam Hazeh, but at least you retain Olam Haba. That's all he could know. The fact that the Rebbe got out, that was a Hu's intervention. That was, the Rebbe's going to send his Hasidim to their death. His family destroy his own everything he's lived for and worked for. Of course not. That was the Kanish Baruch Hu's will. To imply otherwise is is kfira, is a kind of heresy. Um, <clears throat> indeed, if the, if the Gedolim made a mistake, the way we understand it is this is a Shem's will that the Jews should. This is a deep idea. I, I'm. It was a Shem's will. Everything Kolleki Kol and and Sanhedrin, which means. Nothing was an error. It was unthinkable, but we're the cause. We, we do the sins. Is it possible to look at the show as a thing where God didn't necessarily exert full power and he kind of step back and let humans? No. Well, it, it's no. Everything is a Shem's will. What maybe I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but one can say that certainly whatever we did or didn't do caused the show. Meaning, we take the blame on ourselves has always been the Jewish response. Hachit was is, 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 is the term that I, that I used before. Whatever that might mean, it was because we've been assimilating, was because of the reform movement, was because of, of, of the numerous problems, the implosion of Torah uh, and, with, we, and, and so on, uh, all of the above. And, and, and uh, we have collective responsibility. And then a Baruch gives that to us on some level. So if that's what you mean by taking a step back, Certainly, we, we, we accept responsibility on that level. But, um, but, this, but, to, but to, to suggest that somehow this was wrong or the error, people do. In other words, there are people in the world who are co-frame, who, who are heretics, who make these suggestions. Um, and just imagine, it's conceivable that, let's say, playing it through, let's say they advocated, yes, everybody go to Palestine. Let's all flee to Palestine. Well, then, maybe we would have all gone to Palestine and the Nazis would have redirected their efforts there. That was their goal, the eradication of Jews not from Europe, from the world. And they simply would have fought there. In fact, we know, in 1942, General Rommel, the Nazi regime, was on the course. He was, he was conquering North Africa. His goal was eventually Palestine. Ultimately, because of the Nazis', the Nazis um, uh, fortunes had turned by then in 1943... He turned around when he got as far as Alexandria. You know, was pretty close, pretty much to the gateway of Yerushalayim. He got to Alexandria in 1943 and turned back. But you know, had Europe's Jews significantly transported themselves to Palestine, Rommel, as a you know, as, as with his genocidal zeal, almost certainly would not have turned back at that point. He would have gone on to Palestine, and who knows what it would have been? It's all hypothetical. still the white card still. Was- uh, we still couldn't even go into Palestine. Right, uh, all of which is subjective and, 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 and it, it's all guesswork. It's, it's, it's all, we don't know. In the end, we, we, have, we don't understand how these things work. We certainly don't blame our k'dolim who are, who are doing their best eh, without Nevoa to, uh, to, to help the Jews get to the next level. Um, there's a phenomenon, one finds, and we're talking about the different modes of death, there were a lot of Jewish suicides when it seemed that there were no solutions and the world had closed their doors. But it's interesting, the majority of the suicides we found actually in Western Central Europe and and significantly fewer in the East. And if you think about it, there's certain themes, certain patterns in history that we've been tracing for the last several months that might suggest answers to this. We find, for example, Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakian Jews, um, and yet uh, there were a lot of suicides. Poland, very few. A, the Western Jews had made it. They were used to a higher life standard. <laughs> so when they were virtually overnight reduced to poverty, ghettoized, they weren't used to it. And the calamity was more fierce. Think about Martha bin Baitus. If you think about, uh, the, talking about the second temple destruction, when she went out into the streets and she stepped on cow dung, and she perished because she wasn't used to that. Maybe you could make a similar association here uh, they just they, they, whereas in, in eastern europe they were used to the hard life and they could cope more more effectively um, the german jews also were, were generally used to being germans were used to honoring the law so when the nazis said you will abandon your property they said oh well that's the law we'll abandon our property they were good they were good citizens as it were Whereas, if you remember, the Tsarist Russia, Poland, these were corrupt societies. The Jews were used to getting around, fending for themselves, trading on the black market. And so many of them survived exactly this way, uh, in the ghettos, and and to the best of their ability. Um, (coughs) The Germans, generally, as we saw, were more assimilated. And when you don't have a Kodesh Baruch Hu, when your Muna is weaker, when you lack the Tachon, you have fewer fewer coping skills. Um, There's fewer... Innate uh, people who are used to doing chesed for one another, your your chances of survival are slimmer. In the East, Kadosh Baruch was part of was part of their, their their world consciousness. The idea of doing chesed, of reaching out and saving another life, was maybe more. I'm generalizing here. Obviously, there are exceptions to these rules, but there were certain patterns that that we that we can trace here. Um, there were Jews who resisted, and they were heroic in doing so. Uh, there was certainly an underground. The secular Israelis try to highlight this. They try to highlight the underground. Um, I think because it's, they can't fathom the idea of so many passive sheep going to the slaughter. You have to realize the forest the resistant fighters, the Hanesetish's parachuting into, into Hungary and, and, and the other exceptions to the rule were the exceptions to the rule. They, that was not the, the norm. Most Jews didn't have the wherewithal, didn't, didn't fight back. Um, there were others who even more heroically uh, kept the Torah going strong despite everything and in the face of unbelievable uh, resistance, they operated illegal yeshivas. They kept mitzvahs at great personal risk. De- they would, f- death was imminent if they'd be caught. Where uh, this real Tauber, who's a great Torah personality, describes his mother who uh, somehow stayed united with, her fa- with, with his father throughout, throughout most of the years and they continued having children while they were in the ghetto and when people otherwise were telling them they're crazy, how could you bring life, new life into this little insane asylum? And she responded, she said she said, no, this is Dafka where we do the mitzvahs, uh, despite the seemingly impossible situations. Um, tomorrow, I hope to give a different face and maybe this is something that I can offer that is less known, uh, try to humanize and try to understand um, What was the nature of Kiddush Hashem when it existed in the Shoah? What were some of the deeper questions raised? Some of the individuals and their stories. And uh, that'll bring us up to the modern era. We'll conclude before Pesach. And the timing's kind of nice because uh, after Pesach, we'll pick up with the developments in Palestine. Um, Okay, so we'll pick up from here tomorrow.